0: Welcome back to the podcast. This is Josh the Collins podcast episode number eight with my friend Bo, who I went to high school with in Okinawa, Japan, who is currently in flight school to become a pilot in the United States Navy. Bo has been an officer in the United States Navy for quite a long time. He was actually working in the backseat of a cockpit for a while, and now he's moving up to the front being a pilot. So I took this opportunity to ask him a lot of questions about flying in general, a lot of questions about the United States military, and then we had to talk about fitness as well. So if you are interested in flying, the military, fighter jets, fitness, anything like that whatsoever, take a listen you're not going to be disappointed we go over a lot of cool stuff in this podcast so thanks for listening and uh enjoy like i don't know what i'm supposed to do now because like i'm almost 30 and like yeah it's this weird age where like if i wanted to do something that was special warfare at all the cutoff is like 29 so like mm-hmm. it's now or it's not so uh i don't know but um it's just kind of funny like Thinking about like everybody's fallback option when we were in high school was always the military. You know, it seems like everybody's like, I'll just join the military. It comes down to it. Yeah. And I'm at that point where I'm like, well, damn, I don't know if I really am or not, but like, I have to make a decision soon. So,
1: yeah, it's actually tougher to join than people think initially.
0: Oh, yeah. I mean, I'm a military brat and I was working for a year to join, like, to join. Yeah. Yeah. It's really hard.
1: Right out of high school, it's probably a lot easier than once you used to be our age, like, you know, we got our lives pretty much set. Yeah, Joining the military is, is definitely like a second option from what we've been doing. Um, you know, uh, I don't know if you were there when John Lindsay was there, nobody John Lindsay, you know, he not. Um, and then Jake Sizemore.
0: Yeah, Jake Sizemore, he's in California right now,
1: right? Yeah, he's out a little more, that poor, poor guy. Uh, they both actually enlisted just a few years ago, I think,
0: yeah, I don't know. So for people that don't know in the military, there's two ways you can, well, there's three technically, but there's officers and there's enlisted. You also have uh warrant officers, which are kind of like officers, but kind of not at the same time. Uh, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but uh, So officers and enlisted, you kind of have this like no fraternizing like policy across like all the branches, but I've heard that Navy's a lot more strict about fraternization. Is that true?
1: Yes. Well, I mean, yeah, after being deployed to a bunch of Air Force bases, uh, not to rag on the Air Force or anything, but because a lot of their jobs are so similar and they don't live on ships all the time, uh, their frat lines get blurred a lot easier than the Navy's do. Ours is zero tolerance at any time, but that's just due to the nature of the Navy living on a ship when you're locked on a boat with, you know, 200 other people to 5,000 other people, you can't have a functioning warship and have those lines be blurred, whether it's between, uh, you know, just regular friendship types or actual like romantic things. That's just bad for the chain of command and general morale, general discipline of, of the ship really.
0: Yeah, that makes sense. I mean, I I totally get that. I was just told, you know, the Navy is a little bit more old school with a lot of their traditions and a lot of the, uh, rules that other branches don't follow so strictly. I thought it was kind of funny, though, because I'm like, man, like, I've got a friend that's, you know, a Navy officer, like what happens when, like if I was to go enlisted? It's like, well, I can't really talk to you the same way or like, you know, we can't really do the same kind of stuff. Uh, like if we were both to be stationed at the same base or whatever, it'd be kind of different. Um, but I understand the meaning behind that, too. I mean, if you don't have a clear outlined leadership, it's hard to take orders from somebody that you're friends with, especially if like you beat them in Call of Duty the night before. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Or you know too much about their personal lives. I mean, it's the same thing with just, like, managers and employees, you know? Supervisory roles should not be uh, hanging out with people that they're above, I think.
1: That's really that's really all it boils down to. Good order and discipline, as it's written.
0: Makes sense, dude. So, yeah. uh, I mean, I guess you can't really speak to, like, what the difference between, um, like, basic training uh, at uh, over in, like, Chicago versus, like... Uh, the OCS was, but what was OCS like for you? Like, did you go, did did you go to like the academy before you went through or how did you go through?
1: No, so I went through ROTC, Reserve Officer Training Corps at University of New Mexico. So I actually never went to OCS. We take the, uh, the way ROTC is pretty much treated just like JROTC was in high school. You wear your uniform once a week, you go to certain classes, you learn certain things. Um, We actually get a minor in Naval Science coming out of whatever university you're at. so I didn't have to go through OCS. Uh, I did all of my summer cruises as they're called, uh, where you go, <clears throat> you pretty much just get shipped off for a month at a time every summer between um, your years and you do some to- some type of training with uh, the enlisted rates and then some type of training with the officer rates. So like my, between my sophomore and junior year I got sent to San Diego and I was on a frigate for a month, and I worked with the BMs there, so the boats mates, and that was very enlightening and very helpful to just solidify the fact that I never wanted to go live on a boat yeah. like that. Yeah, <laughs> um, probably pretty humbling to be a BM also, since you're like, yeah, doing definitely. a lot of grunt work. Uh, and then between my junior and senior year, my first class cruise, they actually sent me out to Japan to go be partnered up with the Japanese midshipmen from their Naval Academy. So I got to do a 4X foreign exchange uh, and that was awesome. We spent a few days on a Japanese destroyer, which actually have onsen on the destroyer. It was really? nuts. Really? Yes, it was fucking fantastic.
0: That's crazy. Um,
1: yeah, it's, I mean, it's not fancy or nothing, they, but they pipe in salt water past the engines. So it gets nice and hot and they just put it in the bath. It's, you know, communal bath, just like really? traditional onsen and everybody goes in there, you shower and then you sit in the bath for 10 minutes and you rinse off and go to sleep. And I've never, I've never finished a full day of work before gone and taken a shower and they've been like, you know what? Yeah, I definitely want to go put my boots back on and go back to work. But after that, I was like, oh, I could totally go for another shift right now. Like, I feel great. Um, but so we take, we take the three or four months of OCS and cram it into four years of college. Uh, and then we just commissioned straight out of college and go to whatever training we've been selected for. So like, I was selected for aviation. Um, so I left uh, two or three weeks after I commissioned. I left, moved down here to Pensacola to start uh, my aviation journey. So
0: do you, as an officer, I mean, so as enlisted, you get to pick your rate before you leave. And you're pretty much guaranteed that rate as long as you don't screw anything up and as long as you pass all your tests, right? With officers, is it the same or do you kind of get like, like, is it like a dream sheet where you can pick what you kind of want to do, but they put you wherever they need you?
1: A little bit of both. Um, I know talking to my OCS counterparts. You normally try to go CS, go to OCS under a contract. So like you already have an aviation contract, you already have a service warfare contract before you get there. So you know what you're gonna be doing. Uh, but I think that there are some who go in just like an undesignated seaman who just show up to OCS who got selected for OCS and they haven't put anything down and then it's needs of the Navy. Um, and you apply for a job while you're in OCS pretty much. And if you don't get picked up, you don't get picked up.
0: Okay, I see that, that makes sense. So. Uh... When you become an officer going through OCS, do you get, like, more, uh, like, you know, like, good old boy respect than you do going through, like, ROTC in, in college? Like, do people look at you differently knowing that you didn't go to OCS, or does it not matter at all?
1: No, nobody cares. Nobody, nobody cares. Which is actually pretty nice. Uh, occasionally, you get some dudes who are like, well, I went to Duke or something like that. Um, I, I just picked a school. That's not a rip on anybody. <laughs> I just picked a school. It some prestige, It sounds like a pre- prestigious school to me. I went to a University of New Mexico, man, in Albuquerque. It's a very cheap public university. It was great. Fantastic.
0: You know what's really funny about that? Uh, I did not know that you were in Albuquerque. Did you know that I lived in Clovis in 2011? No.
1: Yeah. Really? No. I, I was there the whole time, man. Yeah,
0: I was in Clovis, which is the biggest shithole in the world, and I would never... In my life
1: wish that upon anybody it's so yeah, i mean terrible. i don't disagree with you yeah clovis is pretty bad it but was, was, why were you in clovis
0: so when i'm so when my parents left japan i stayed back i stayed in japan for another year after they left uh and i didn't want to come back to the u.s but then they moved to new mexico i ended up leaving okinawa and i moved to where they were because as a military brat i don't really have a home yeah and okinawa is where i was like I think Okinawa is where I was the longest, like before moving anywhere. So it's kind of like, well, I don't really know where I belong now. So I just went to New Mexico. And so I went from beaches (laughs) in Okinawa to the (laughs) desert of New Mexico and not the cool kind like Albuquerque. So Clovis, wait, have you, you've been to Clovis before? Yeah, I've been to Clovis. Yeah. So, you know, there's nothing there. It's just, there's a highway that goes into a tiny little town where nobody likes military people and it's just fields of nothing. So I remember being there and having to go to the, um, to the dentist in Lubbock, Texas, because it yeah. was closer than Albuquerque and it was the closest dentist that did like actual dentistry. So having to drive three hours into Texas to get your teeth looked at was a pain in the ass. Yeah.
1: Yeah. yeah. And I also completely understand and empathize with the shock of going straight from Okinawa to New Mexico, man, because that's what I did. Yeah. Uh, I left, I got I graduated June 6th of 2009. Uh, and I think in, the end of July, maybe early to mid August, I got to Albuquerque for school, and I literally just packed my bags. I mean, my dad flew off so he could drop me off at college, and it was one of those just like, holy shit, like, <laughs> what is going on right now? But yeah, okay. at least I had some type of infrastructure and in like, you know, restaurants to get at bars to go to and stuff. Yeah, I and guess that's were, true. You were in Clovis. That's pretty rough.
0: Yeah, and I lived in uh, base housing, like the base housing that was like a weird thing that was off the base. So the only thing that was near me was something called Allsups, which is like a gas station. And the very first day I was there, uh, when I went into Allsups, there was some dude from MS-13 that had MS-13 tattooed on his face really, really big. who was arguing with the guy behind the counter and just like took all of his money and walked out. So it was very weird to go from Japan to that, especially because everyone spoke Spanish in Clovis. It was like no, very few like English conversations going around. And then you had cowboys. Like real cowboys that I'd never seen before, so it was it was like a movie, man. It was very odd.
1: Yeah, it's definitely a culture shock. Um, yeah, New Mexico is not the nicest state you could have done the transition back to America in. Um, it's definitely pretty mean. Yeah, true.
0: I think people were way less, uh, way less like kind there than japan and yeah. uh i remember i met some people from like the area and i had asked them like hey what do you guys do for fun and they're like oh we go to hobby lobby and i was like you guys hang out at a hobby lobby like and you do crafts they're like no we go to the parking lot of hobby lobby and we just hang out and that's all they did they just hang out at the parking lot of hobby lobby it was very i mean i don't mean to knock anybody's hometown but if you're from clovis then fuck you
1: no i'm just kidding yeah we also can't talk too much shit about hanging out in parking lots, man. We used to go to Family Mart and hang out in the parking lots all the time.
0: That's not a parking <laughs> lot. That's a designated hangout area. <laughs> I would. Yeah, I agree. I agree. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Um, yeah, man, I, I do miss I do miss that. Uh, you know what I noticed? The funniest thing I noticed about coming back to the U.S. are like, just like really minor differences between Japan and the U.S. Like, most Americans can't do the Oki squat. They can't do the Asian squat where they have their feet flat and they sit down. Yeah, almost every American that like I've showed that like they try to do that and they try to go in the balls of their feet or they just fall and they just get this weird look like, how is that even physically possible? But I remember just like sitting like that and like reaching for a beer and smoking a cigarette and eating all at the same time and just like chilling. Yeah,
1: that's just good squat mobility, really. Yeah, they just need to do more squats.
0: Yeah, and I mean, (laughs) the cool thing about that specific position is if you're hanging out in that position and then something pops off, you can just stand up immediately and you're good to go. Yeah. But people that sit down, they get, you know, crisscross applesauce, Indian style, and that now your legs are all tingled up like a pretzel, so if something pops off, you're, man, that's just, like, perfect situation situational awareness, you know?
1: Yeah. <laughs> no, but, dude, at my age, man, I can't even do that for too long anymore. My knees, my hips, my back's all messed up. Mostly from, I don't know, car accidents and sitting in ejection seats for so long, but,
0: have you ever had to eject? Oh, of course you've never had to eject before. But did you, have, did you ever have to take any sort of like uh, training to like simulate ejecting out of an airplane?
1: Yes, but it's very—it's a very mild simulation compared to the actual physiological event of ejecting. Um, it's just a little compressed air-powered pneumatic shot, really. So you have to assume the proper body position. Like you're all dressed up in the gear. You assume the body position. You're strapped in, and you pull a handle, and it shoots you up like four feet into the air on rails and then you just slide back down.
0: I mean, that sounds like fun, whereas I imagine ejecting out of an airplane is probably not a very fun sensation. Considering you're probably compressing your spine so hard that a lot of people that probably get ejected probably get pretty bad spinal injuries from it.
1: Yeah, they actually shrink. You're shorter. You're anywhere from like three quarters to an inch and a half shorter. Uh, You're actually only allowed two ejections before you can't fly in ejection seats anymore. Wow. Um, Yeah. But it's, it's super violent, I mean you're sitting on, on rockets and the way the ejection seat works is that as soon as you pull the handle uh, and for like a tandem cockpit either place, either the pilot or the backseater can pull the handle and both seats will eject, backseat first obviously then, for, then front seat. Um, it's so fast and so violent that you are ejected out of the aircraft, um, separated from the seat and then swinging under an open parachute in less than two seconds. So they actually have a timed out. like I could probably find my nitops and see what the T6 ejection sequence is, but it's like 0.18 seconds after initiation of the handle, the back seat is halfway up the rails uh, and the canopy's already exploded. Uh, 0.23 seconds afterwards, the front cockpit is starting to be ejected. Like half a second, the, Back seat is completely out and 100 feet above the aircraft, and the front seat is 50 feet above the aircraft. And all these numbers are arbitrary; I'm making them up. But that's pretty much how fast happens. So, like, at one second after ejection, both seats are completely out of the airplane and separated by, you know, a few hundred feet, so that the seats don't hit each other. Uh, at a second and a half, the back seat is completely separated from the chair and hanging in your straps. The front seat is beginning to separate, and then by two seconds, both Aircrew are under their parachute, you know, falling to the ground. Well, when
0: when does the uh, like the rubber slide come out?
1: Is that yeah, right? <laughs> <laughs> Actually, Man. we do have a raft. We have a giant rubber inflatable raft. Does that uh, get injected you... with you? Yeah, it's part of our seat kit, our seat survival kit (SSK). Um, it's got these little handles on the back when you eject, and so if you're conscious you're supposed to be able to reach back there and pull those. So it separates the raft and inflates it uh, if you need it.
0: So what was it like the very first time you got into a jet? Like what, I imagine heart racing, sweaty palms, trying to act like I'm not worried about this, but like what, what was it like the very first time like you felt G-Force like it was meant to be felt?
1: Uh, it's pretty eye-opening, that's for sure. Uh, but I mean, even the T6, the, the little propeller trainer that we fly can pull up to seven Gs. So seven times the force of gravity, like if you're a 200-pound dude, I don't know, you're a 1,400-pound dude at seven Gs. Like, it's pretty intense, but your body starts to get used to it. So because our initial primary trainer is so good, by the time I got to Jets, it was definitely faster. It was more Gs, and you can sustain more Gs because you're going faster and you have more power. But it's definitely tough. Like, it's hard on the body, man. It hurts. Yeah, but it's, imagine. Um, when you first feel like those six and a half, seven, seven and a half Gs and you're just holding on for dear life because you have no idea what's going on like, and then they stop, you have to take a breath and you're like, what the hell just happened? Like, hold on. Oh, I'm, I'm still alive. I'm good. I'm here. Like, I can move my arms again. Have you passed out before? I have not, no. Lucky no, right? I got I got tree trunk legs. Yeah, so I just do all I do all the squats and then you're good Yeah, so what do you do like do you uh, absorb
0: all that like extra gravity, right? Are you like puckering up squeezing everything as like as hard as possible and then just like sucking in air every two seconds or how does that work?
1: Pretty much. Yeah, they the anti G straining maneuver is what it's called uh, or colloquially the hick maneuver where you're actually closing the epiglottis so the air can't be released so the, as soon as you start pulling positive Gs, all the blood starts leaving your head and it starts going toward your, towards your feet because of uh, centrifugal force. So you're wearing a G suit and that'll inflate as the Gs increase, but as far as total tolerance goes, your G suit's really only going to give you about one extra G of tolerance. Um, so you start low, you start squeezing your calves, then your thighs, then your butt, your giant butt muscles, and you squeeze all of those to try and force more blood up into your stomach. Then you s- Uh, flex your stomach and the g-suit because it's now inflated gives you something to press against and you're just trying to keep all of the blood up in your head because as soon as the blood goes out your vision goes gray you start getting tunnel vision uh, and then that's when you have g-lock g-induced loss of consciousness that's when you pass out Um, Mm -hmm. it's pretty intense
0: so you've got to be like in pretty good physical form to be flying on jets like all the time right like you can't lack on any sort of workouts otherwise like your body just can't keep up with the constant like g-force pressures of whatever you're doing?
1: Yes and no. The actual physiologically speaking like we talked to doctors the best fighter pilots gonna be short fat and have hypertension because um, ah. there's there's less if they're short there's less distance for the blood to go away from the head. Uh, if they're fat they have high blood pressure hypertension um, and they're able to absorb more G so it takes more g's to pull the blood out of the head because the heart is pumping at such a pressure that it's keeping the blood up there already so like one of my really good friends that i was flying with up in Woodby, be he was a backseater as well he's like six two six three uh, but he runs marathons and he's a sponsored triathlete like does triathlons every weekend races podiums like the dude is insane said, like, i'm gonna go on a short run today man and i was like oh like two miles he's like no like 17 and i'm like okay like you're insane he actually has a lot harder time to, because he's in such good shape. His blood pressure is so low. His heart rate is so low. Um, and he's taller that he has such a hard time holding up. Well, I should say he has such a hard time. He's a great NFO and he, you know, he's fully capable of doing everything. But it's harder for him than somebody like me who's a lot shorter. Like I'm only 5'9 uh, and I got really thick legs and I do a lot of weight So I'm able to flex my legs and force that, uh, blood back up in my head versus him who's a distance runner and everything. He's a lot skinnier. It's just harder, just different body compositions. But like I said, your body gets used to it. So now like I don't even feel really anything below three G's. I shouldn't say I don't feel it. It just doesn't affect me.
0: I mean, that makes sense. I imagine time after time of doing the same thing, regardless of how much strain you're putting on your body, your body will eventually adapt. That's kind of how humans are. That's how we're created really is to be able to yeah. adapt to a lot of stuff. Um, so, it's hearing that guy being so tall. I've heard, uh, I might ask you a bunch of stupid questions, right?
1: Now, no, I'm asking.
0: And they're going to be stupid in the sense that like, I might not actually think this, you know, but I might want you to explain it because you could explain it a whole lot better than I could. Is there a cap on how tall you can be as a, to be a fighter pilot? I mean, I heard that you couldn't be over like 6'4 or 6'5 because you couldn't fit. Is that true or is yes. that kind of
1: bullshit? Yeah, no, that's definitely true. But it's, it's not because you wouldn't make a good fighter pilot. It's literally because they don't make aircraft that fit you. I mean, it's the same with, with cars. If you're a super tall dude, you can't drive a little Honda Civic. You need something bigger because you just don't fit.
0: That makes sense. How tall, how, what's the height like limit? Do you know off the top of your head like how tall you can be?
1: Um, to fly fighter jets, I think you have to be 5'1", to like 6'4". Oh, I, think,
0: uh, I thought you meant like one was the max. So I was like, Oh my God. No, dude. no, no. Sorry. Okay. sorry.
1: five is five the, the bottom. And there's a weight limit for the ejection seat as well. Uh, but they're adjustable like to an extent, just like a car seat, you can move front and back. The ejection seat goes up and down and the rudder pedals go forwards and backwards. But because the engineering is so precise for the actual airframe itself, there's a very strict limit as to what it can be adjusted to. Um, uh, Cause like they build the aircraft first and make sure the aircraft is a good fighting machine. And then they build everything else to go in the aircraft. Uh, So.
0: Yeah. I mean, naturally if you're spending billions of dollars on an aircraft to make sure that aircraft is good, you're not going to customize it for one person. It's got to be like a general access and specifically to make that thing work, you know, the the best way it possibly could. I mean, I don't know. There's, I don't believe there's any aircraft that costs literally a billion dollars, but millions of dollars for sure. Um,
1: uh, yeah. I mean, there is though.
0: What what aircraft is the Navy using that cost a billion?
1: Oh, I don't know if the air or if the Navy does, but the the Air Force B two is like two billion dollars, I think.
0: Oh yeah, I guess that's
1: true. I didn't really. Again, hold on. To... What's that guy's name again? Let's ask him. Uh, he's, he's looking it up right now. <laughs> yeah. Oh no! All right, it's uh, Nine hundred and twenty-nine million, so okay. just about so a billion, billion dollars. a billion yeah. dollars. Yeah,
0: if yeah. somebody had nine hundred and twenty-nine million and they're like, "Well, I'm not really a billionaire," I'd be like, "Bullshit, <laughs> you're a billionaire." Yeah. Okay, so here's here's some random fact that I heard right, uh, and this one's true. I actually looked it up. So, a lot of people in the U.S. have a have a hard time understanding exactly how much money a billion dollars is have you seen what I'm gonna say right now I'm pretty sure yeah Yeah, where they talk about uh, a million dollars if you put that into a sec into seconds like a a million seconds it's like 11 days but Mm -hmm. a billion seconds is 33 fucking years
1: yeah yeah that's the the comprehension for how big a billion is is not taught in most schools
0: yeah And even then, like, I I think people just think thousand and a million, the difference between thousands and millions is a lot, but also kind of negligible when you're talking about money, you know, if somebody has $500,000 and somebody has a million dollars, they're both very well off, but like $500,000 is not, I mean, it's double, uh, it's half of what a million is, but it's not really that much different. But a million and a billion is a big fucking difference. Yeah. I mean, a a billion is literally a thousand millions, and I think people have a hard time, like, comprehending that sometimes so uh i mean not to get too political at all because i am very libertarian so i really hate everybody basically is what yeah, that means fair enough. <laughs> oh, Yeah, enough. but uh n- not to get too much into that but uh that's why anytime somebody like says like man well that person's a billionaire they earn the money themselves they shouldn't have to pay anything higher i'm like bitch do you have any idea how much yeah, a billion they, dollars is
1: no they just don't that's that's really all it is they just don't yeah
0: and i mean especially when you talk about guys that have billions of dollars and they've got millions and millions in offshore accounts and they pay zero dollars in taxes. Just yeah. loopholes that are just kind of like, man, I paid more m- money in taxes and I didn't have a job for half the year because of coronavirus.
1: Yeah, exactly. Yeah, I don't think that any billionaires should be paying less taxes than like our teachers and nurses. Man, that's just, it's just kind of fucked. Yeah, for sure. And that's not to say that it's bad on them. They found the loopholes and they have the power and the money to employ people to use those loopholes so they don't have to pay the taxes. It's just, one, a giant dick move, and two, all the more reason for us to audit the IRS and, you know, close some of those loopholes.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And then when you do that, it ends up hurting a lot of small people, too. You know, like, uh, small businesses getting hit with a lot of stuff. I mean, I've worked for small businesses almost my entire life. Like, I've worked for very few big corporations, Um, and just seeing, like, tax changes and seeing how crazy hard it affects small businesses, Mm -hmm. it sucks, especially during this coronavirus time, like you see a lot of big businesses shutting down, but majority of small businesses just got killed because they can't afford to bleed and hemorrhage money for six months straight. Whereas like Apple, Sony, Walmart, all these big locations, they can bleed money for a long time. I mean, they're going to close a lot of locations. A lot of people are going to be out of jobs, but they're going to be the only provider for that service in that area because now the little guy is completely out of the way. So, I mean, my biggest worry for this whole Corona thing is not whether we're going to bounce back, it's, it's how many small businesses are going to exist when we bounce back. I know a lot of people have opened up opportunities for themselves in this time. Like I have, but I just don't want everything to be a gigantic Walmart parking lot.
1: Yeah. Agreed. Like I still try to support local businesses as much as I can. Like when we go back from the in April, um, you know, right at the beginning of the lockdown, nobody was, you couldn't go out to eat anywhere. You know, I had to stay in my house for two weeks once I got home before I could even do anything. So I was getting um, a lot of delivery food from all the places that I'd missed, uh, you know, from being in the Middle East for 10 months. Uh, So I got delivery pizza. That was one of the first things I got from Village Pizza. It's a little mom and pop shop there in Anacortes. Uh, Pretty much any store that I had eaten at before, I got delivery from for those two weeks. And then most of them were doing curbside pickup uh and i would go most of the meals when i got home because i had to eat you know shitty facto food for 10 months i just went to town for like the, the month that i was home before i moved of eating and drinking everything that i had missed out on so local breweries uh they were allowed to deliver beer and do like curbside pickup for growlers and stuff so that was a lot of fun That's sick. Uh, and i was like man i just spent 10 months in middle east i had a few extra bucks, so I always try to leave a bigger tip for the guys that were hurting more than I was, you know. I can only imagine these people who are, especially the bars and the, and the restaurants, that are used to having people in there every night, uh, and not necessarily being packed, it was a small town, but having a steady source of income. Now all of a sudden, just like you said, they're hemorrhaging money because they, if they pay people to, to work and even stay open and cook for delivery or curbside, they still do not have the same amount of businesses they had, you know, when they were full open.
0: Yeah, for sure. And I mean like I've been doing photography and videography as like my main source of income for a while and like just to see that alone like just and my brother and his wife they're both wedding photographers that's what they do for full time you know and they make good money off of it but then what happens is when your lifestyle is changed based on your income that you're making and all of a sudden out of nowhere that income drops to zero you still have bills to pay and Mm -hmm. now you don't have any income coming in so like for them they they had wedding after wedding after wedding just cancel on them you know and you know i don't want to go over like what they charge for weddings but let's just say industry standard like somebody's charging like $2,500 to $5,000 for a wedding if they had 10 weddings cancel that were all going to be during that summer they lost anywhere between two like $20,000 and $50,000 like immediately and that's you know tuition for school that's you know their uh mortgage that's Taking their do- their dog to the vet and everything. I mean, I was I've been lucky. Uh, I'm not gonna lie. Like, it hit me pretty hard. I was working on base, and my job was considered uh, uh, was considered uh, what's the word I want to use non-essential. No, it was considered essential originally, and then they were nice. like, "Hey, because there's fewer people coming on base right now, because they dropped it down to like 10 percent of people working on base at the mm-hmm. time." Uh, they're like, your job has now become non essential because there's not enough people for you to provide security for. So, yeah, like it was this weird thing where they wanted me to quit because I don't know. I don't know why. It's very weird when you work for the Department of Defense. Um, like, it's really hard to fire people, it's almost impossible to fire people, especially during coronavirus. Like, it was a really hard thing, but I was eventually let go. Um, and then I've been applying for jobs since then. Now, that was in July and I still have not got anything. I had one job that yeah. I, I made it to the third interview. Uh, it was a video a videographer position and I had to create a video for them, right? So I went through phone interview, in-person interview, a second kind of weird interview thing where they asked, or third kind of weird interview thing where they asked me to create a video for them. I did, I submitted it, and then they stopped talking to me. And so I popped up on the on like you know my job finding site and I found that they just reposted that position like a couple days ago and i'm like oh so i didn't get the job that's cool that they made me wait all this time and like do all that stuff to not get it yeah classic Uh, but it's crazy because like everybody's out of work right now so that kind of like is why the whole military thing's creeping back up in my head again where i'm like man my parents always had a job (laughs) like yeah even during war they still got a paycheck so i just kind of trying to juggle this whole like you know living the military lifestyle which is not a bad lifestyle but it's definitely a, a difficult one and then you know, being a civilian, I have a lot more freedom to do whatever I want. I could say whatever mm-hmm. the fuck I want to whoever the fuck I <laughs> want, whenever the fuck I want, it doesn't matter. But at the same time, uh, I don't have a job. So I'm like, yeah. you know, s- you know, scrounging for change to try to pay bills sometimes, but it's, it's working out. I'm lucky though, because like my parents have been able to like allow my wife and I to stay with them. Um, originally we stayed with them because I was going to leave for the Navy and my wife was going to stay here when I left. And then when everything was like on hold, uh, we've just kind of been here, <laughs> so it's been yeah. it's been a long time, but uh, yeah, yeah we'll, we'll pull through eventually. Um, but yeah, enough about yeah. me, anyways. I want to ask you some more questions, man. <laughs> yeah, go so, for it, man. So, uh, so there's big navy, and then there's like other navy, right? Are you considered big navy being a, like you know flying because that's kind of <laughs> like you are, but you're also not going to be stationed on a ship doing ship stuff.
1: Yes, and yes, and no. it depends. That's the best aviator answer you're ever going to get. Every time you get asked a question, you're like, well, it depends. Um, so the big Navy is what everybody in the Navy just calls the, the general hierarchy of the Navy, like Chief of Naval Operations, Assistant Chief of Naval Operations, I don't even know if that's a real title, but that's what I call them, all the way down through your commanding officer, of the squadron or the boat kind of thing. So when we're talking big Navy, we're talking about the Navy as a whole, not specifically which jobs we have, uh, but from people on the outside looking in the big Navy is your submarines, your boats and your aircraft those are the three general warfare devices that you go into like one of those three categories so like when i graduated college like you asked earlier depressingly, you have to volunteer for all of the positions but you volunteer in a ranked order for what you want Um, so of course i put pilot nfo uh, special warfare surface warfare and then We had to put one nuclear option, either surface nuclear or submarines, since all subs are nukes. So you have to rank like your top six out of all of them. And of course, that one was last on the list was surface warfare, nuclear officer. Um, So because I have to write it down, I am volunteering myself for that position because it's on the sheet. Like, you volunteer for it, man. It's number six on your sheet. If you didn't want it, it's like, well, I had to put six and that was the sixth one. So that kind of thing. One of my buddies, he double majored in like chemistry and biology. He wanted to go to med school and he wanted to get picked up because he was an rcc too. He wanted to get picked up for their docs program. He wanted the Navy to send him to medical school. And they were like, man, this guy's real smart. And look here, number six, he volunteered to be a sub nuke. Oh. And he, you know, got sent out to go to power school and all that. And Right. So he served his contract and got out and i think he's going to medical school now but because you volunteer for them like yeah, you it's it's a completely volunteer force if you don't if you don't want to do it you can always quit um, once you finish your contract uh, so like me because i'm still under contract for flying if for some reason i woke up tomorrow and was like you know what i don't want to fly today i don't have to but i'd have to go there and be like i don't ever want to fly again and they'd be like cool man there's a desk uh, we're either gonna transfer you to some other job that you're equally not gonna like, or uh, you'll just sit at that desk and answer phones until your contract runs out.
0: Yeah, the military's, uh, the military's not really well known for being uh, understanding of other people's life situations as far as like, I don't really like the job I'm doing, especially if they dump a bunch of money into you. So like, uh, I've heard, you know, like kids ask questions before, um, about the military in general like oh well can i go do this job and then get out and then go do something else and come back in like well yeah maybe but they're also going to punish you for the amount of money they're going to spend training you for you just to get out and then come back and try to do something else so like I, I, that kind of makes sense what you're saying i mean uh i mean then again when i'm talking to to uh Beau, i've never been in the military i've just been around it my entire life so i have that I feel like we have the same perspective in that way. And then you have the, the additional perspective of actually being in it, you know, swearing in, taking the oath and everything. Um, so I don't want to make it sound like I know what the fuck I'm talking about half the time, because I don't, <laughs> I no, just I, know I mean, parts of it. So.
1: You're pretty spot on. Um, so like for me, because I did actually do a lat transfer from NFO to now student avi- Naval aviator and hopefully a pilot here soon. Um, you're exactly right. They're going to get their pound of flesh. So I had to sign a new contract that said, I'll serve what a brand new student naval aviator serves. So even though I've been in seven and a half years now, once I get my wings, my eight years, my new contract of eight years starts. So regardless of the fact that I've already been in eight years, hopefully, you know, less than two years before I get my next set of wings. And then once I get those wings, now my new contract starts. And so it's very, just like you said, once they pour a bunch of money into you, they're not, they're not trying to send you off somewhere else to go do a different jobs. I'm super lucky to be picked up for what I did. They only take about five a year from all platforms on the NFO side. <clears throat> so all platforms that have naval flight officers on them, uh, E2s, P8s, P3s, fighter jets, E6s, they usually pick only about five a year that apply to send them back through flight school again to go be a pilot uh, and fly. So it's super competitive, I'm super lucky, but they're definitely getting their pound of flesh on me because they were like, we just dumped in, you know, we'll say $5 million to train you and send you up to go fly the Growler and be an electronic warfare officer. And now you want to switch to go do something. um, You're going to pay us back for it. And so that's where the eight year contract comes in. But I plan on being a lifer anyways, because it's tedious at times, but it's a pretty simple job when you actually boil it down. They tell me what to do, what to wear, what to fly like I really don't have to think much and then job security is pretty good as long as I don't, you know, get drunk and crash my car and kill somebody. I'm probably going to be all right.
0: <laughs> yeah, I mean like like I, I, in the military you have such job security because we in America love to do war and we're really good at it too. I mean, regardless of of what people say about like, you know, like what, whether we should be somewhere or not, if we go somewhere, we're going to do it better than anybody else does it. And we're going to do it way more expensive than everybody else does it because our budget for that is way higher than everybody else. So, I mean, you have that really added sense of job security, because I don't think we're ever going to stop doing war. I think that's just uh, what we do. I I think it's part of human nature. Yeah, for sure. And like, you know, I mean, I've got my own opinions about how that, how all that stuff should run which is like a totally different podcast and like a very long (laughs) conversation okay so there's a lot of jobs in in the military that people think is cool right pilots i feel like people think is a really cool job do you get people that like think your job is like the coolest job in the world often
1: yeah i mean dude all, all said and done there's nothing sexier than flying a fighter jet man like nobody nobody doesn't like watching the blue angels People see the blue enders flying, even if they're like, damn, those things are loud and I wish they weren't right over me, they're still watching. They're still looking up at them like, I wonder what that's like. I wonder what's happening. I wonder what they're doing kind of thing. Um, Yeah, I've made friends just through social media and um, the internet and just casual acquaintances that I've only met and made these good friends because of our genuine love for aviation. Um, It's pretty... It's a pretty sweet job, even I think my job is pretty fucking cool. Like, not to toot my own horn, but I got to fly in fighter jets for the last, you know, five years of my life, six years of my life, and I got to learn about that entire side of aviation and that, all of the capabilities that aircraft are currently capable of, because the EA-18 is a very new aircraft. It's based on the F-18, it's slightly different, same handling characteristics, pretty much but it's a fourth generation fighter jet. Like I've obviously never been an F-22 or an F-35. Those things are definitely next level. That's fifth generation. Um, but just the leaps and bounds from the different types of training aircraft. So the T-6, little single engine turboprop to the T-45, little single engine jet trainer to the F-18. The differences in capabilities between the aircraft and the advances in technology that we've made, seeing all of that is mind boggling at times. So when people, everybody asks the same questions, like, what does it feel like to pull Gs? What's it like going upside down? Yeah. Um, yeah. Those types of questions I almost feel bad answering because I don't think that I do them justice. I, I can't answer them like I would have answered them when I first started flying because it's become so routine for me and I feel bad, but I pretty much take it for granted now. Um, so the part of training that I'm in here at Whiting Field is aero, so aerobatics, which is doing loop-de-loops, put the plane upside down, uh, barrel rolls, aileron rolls, all those kind of things, all the cool types of things that you want to do in an airplane and you want to see the airplanes do. And so all the other students that don't have any aviation experience or any aero experience talk to me and I have to tell them the truth, I'm like, honestly, man, it's pretty boring. It's cool, but the fun factor isn't there for me anymore because I just spent the last six years of my life in fighter jets, we went upside down all the time, Pulling Gs is nothing new to me. I don't have that sense of awe like I did the first time going through training. Until you start putting two airplanes together in the sky now, um, do BFM, basic fighting maneuvers like dogfighting. those are the kind of flights that are really fun. You put two airplanes, pulling Gs, you know, pilot against pilot, plane against plane. That's when it starts to become fun for me, trying to utilize my plane and my crew to the best of my ability to win the fight and you know, don't die pretty much. Um, so, it, oh man, for lack of a better analogy, it's like it's like a drug fix. You start out small and you're like, this is the fucking best shit ever. And then you try the next thing. So I went from, from a little turboprop to a jet and I was like, oh no, this is the best thing ever. This thing's way cooler. And then I went to an even better fighter jet and I was like, holy shit, this is nuts. This is awesome got used to that and then I went to two fighter jets and so now two fighter jets are flying around in close proximity to each other and the the g's are more intense the rules are more intense the the actual maneuvers that the aircraft are doing are just insane when you think about it in terms of like aerodynamic type stuff the amount of science and technology that goes into these aircraft so now that is where I'm at that's what gets me going
0: So I guess the
1: next,
0: <laughs> I guess the next step is we're gonna have to start a war with Russia so you can actually
1: like have a real dogfight, right? Uh, yeah, but prefer I'd prefer to never have to actually oh, do that Yeah, my yeah, job. absolutely, absolutely. Uh, I mean, you, you, prepare,
0: <laughs> you prepare in your head, it sounds like a whole lot of fun, but I imagine actually doing it would would really suck. Um, so I'm gonna ask you some stereotypical questions. I bet I bet people have just like rapid just fire it. questions, right? Yeah, let's do it. Again, I don't know if any of this breaks OPSEC, so who knows if you can actually answer half the stuff that I'm going to ask you, too. What's the, fast- tell you. What's the fastest you've ever been in an
1: aircraft? Mach 1.3. 1. 1.3 1. 3 times the speed of sound. How fast is
0: that in miles per hour? <laughs>
1: <laughs> so now you're getting into the science of it. It depends on your altitude, depends on the um, density altitude, depends on the aircraft uh, and like your location above sea level, really. I think the speed of sound at sea level is like 700 miles an hour or something, but it gets less as you go up in altitude. Okay. So um, dry air at 20 degrees Celsius, speed of sound at sea level is 343 meters per second, which means absolutely nothing to me (laughs) in miles per hour. Let's do that. Okay. Yeah, so 769 miles per hour at, uh, at sea level. As you go up in altitude, because the pressure density is less, um, the speed requires, or the speed required to break the sound barrier at twenty, uh, not two hundred thousand feet, twenty thousand feet, is just less, and that's based on size. So, at twenty thousand feet, um, speed of sound is seven hundred miles an hour. At twenty-five thousand feet, it's less than It's like six hundred ninety miles an hour. Um, so.
0: So you. So you went like 700 miles an hour at least yeah so i imagine that's a, a big rush but then again i feel like maybe it's not as much once you kind of get far away from stuff and you know you're going really fast do you still feel that like are you pulling g's when you're going that fast or do you kind of no. not feel it after a while i mean i imagine like as, as you're accelerating you do and then once you get up to speed it's kind of just like you're in a fucking plane just like any other plane right
1: Yeah. No, that's exactly what it is. It's actually rather anticlimactic. Oh, breaking the sound barrier is always cool. You should always do it. It's great. I'll try Um, it. I'll
0: try it next time I'm flying.
1: Yeah. The the next chance you get, just take it. Uh, but in terms of what it feels like and what it looks like, uh, only to spectators on the ground when you see air aircraft go by and then it's like that sound traveling behind the jet, that's the only cool part in the jet. All you see is your Mach number tick up from 0.99, to 1.0, to 1.01, 1.02, and you're like, oh, we're going faster than the speed of sound. Like, nice. there's no audible change, there's no physical change. Yeah. The aerodynamic principles are way intense. Like, Bermuda's principles reversed above the speed of sound due to compression ratios and all the sciencey stuff. I was an Asian studies major, so I'm just repeating things, buzzwords that I've heard going through. Um, but it doesn't feel any different Um, In terms of flying so
0: what you're saying is like when you're flying faster than the speed of sound if You say something it doesn't take a couple seconds for it to hit your your pilot, right?
1: (laughs) No Speed is relative. Yeah. Yeah, Uh, I was talking to somebody about that one time and They they said
0: something (laughs) like yeah, if you if you fly past the speed of sound and you'd have a conversation You won't hear it until you slow it down. I'm like (laughs) It's, it's not you how give that,
1: that w- guy a high five?
0: That's yeah. awesome. So it's not how that works, buddy. But, I've also,
1: no, I would have told him that's exactly how it works.
0: You know, like, there, there's surprisingly a large number of people that don't understand basic physics, and a lot of basic physics is really common sense, you know? Um, like, yes, I would agree. People that, that think that because you're on the Earth, there's no way it could, like a lot of people that are flat earthers think that the, uh, the reason that the Earth has to be flat is that if you're on Earth and it's spinning at 1,000 miles an hour and you jump up, you don't move 1,000 miles that way or that way. And I'm like sitting here like, yeah, but if I'm in a car going sixty miles an hour and I have a baseball and I toss it up, it doesn't shoot out the back window at yeah,
1: sixty exactly. miles
0: an hour. It's it's relative to the atmosphere that you're in. The atmosphere of the car is now correct. I mean, that's not the that's not the correct terminology, but I mean No, that's, but that's exactly how it works. Yeah, that's exactly how it works. The same thing with the airplane. But I've had I've heard people like say some very weird stuff especially when it comes to like aviation because very few people actually know from experiencing it so a lot of people are just like basing it off of you know whatever so here, now they brought up flat earth theory here's a question for you <laughs> I have, love it. have you it. seen the curvature of the earth with how high have you flown
1: yes yeah
0: so it's not flat are you positive about that
1: yeah probably <laughs> okay yeah <laughs> <laughs> just, no, mo- so most of the time at least for my platform really don't go above um 30, 35,000 feet normally. Um, You really have to get up into the upper 40s or higher to see the curvature of the earth. Um, But on a good, super clear day, if you're up at, yeah, 45,000 feet, you can can start to see it. It's real.
0: Let's talk about fitness a little bit because you seem (laughs) like a very- Wait, pause
1: for just a second real quick. Yeah, no worries. My friend who lives in my apartment complex, now, this is like, this is for you because I think you're going to find this funny as well. My friend who lives in my apartment complex the other night, she texted me. She was like, hey, are you home? There's like cops everywhere and people screaming and shit. And I was like, no, I'm not. Like, that sounds terrible. What happened? And she she just sent me the article. Our apartment complex made the news. It says, Pensacola woman in angel costume attacks deputies, uses wings as weapon. That's That was here.
0: <laughs> I mean, you're in Florida, so now you get all the cool Florida man stories, but they're like oh live God, and real. dude. Yeah, yeah.
1: It's just everyday life.
0: You know, the funny thing about Florida is people don't realize that Florida is the south. Florida is very much not a tropical paradise unless you're in very specific areas. And there's a lot Yeah, of- once
1: you get like south of Tampa.
0: <laughs> and like, I mean, I used to live in Tampa when I was young. I don't really remember too much about it, but I remember an alligator being in our pool so we couldn't swim. Um yep. Sounds about right. But like, yeah, there are alligators. There's a lot of country people and there are Confederate flags all over the place.
1: Yes. Anyways, back to fitness before we get on Florida because Florida's dumb. Don't get me wrong. I love Key West. Uh, Key West is where the 90s go to stay alive. And if I ever get the chance to get stationed out there, I'm 1000% taking it. And I like Pensacola. And I enjoy the Gulf Coast for the most part. Because it's the coast, yeah. and I like the beach, and I love fishing. And then everything else in Florida can pretty much just fuck right off.
0: Yeah, I know. <laughs> I know the feeling. <laughs> all
1: right, all right, done with Florida. Okay. Fitness. Fitness yeah. is a good one.
0: So, so talking about fitness, uh, you've kind of always been a, uh, in shape. Like, ever since high school, you've been – you what, you played soccer in high school, right, and, like, other sports, and, like, you were pretty much always in shape – But more recently, especially when you went on your last deployment um, to undisclosed location in the Middle East, which is what I saw it tagged as everywhere. Yeah, well, Um,
1: this is it right here. This is the base I was at, so super undisclosed.
0: Nice. Um, It seemed like uh, you were really getting more into, like, uh, I don't know if it was CrossFit or what it was, but you're definitely lifting a whole lot more. Is that something that you've started developing recently, or have you kind of just, like, slowly uh, got more into, like, heavier fitness stuff?
1: Uh, well, since you brought it up, yes, it is CrossFit. Just for the record, I didn't say it first, you did. So I did bring it up we, first. We, we can talk about it now. Um, <laughs> I started CrossFit actually here in Pensacola uh, in 2014. It's 2014, I started CrossFit after my car accident. I got into a really bad car accident when I first got down here uh, in 2013. I got T-Bone pulling out my housing complex. So they had to cut me out of the car with the jaws of life, airlift me to the hospital. I was in the hospital for a week. I broke my pelvic bone in three locations. Like I got pretty fucked up. Damn, dude. That's a
0: a car that crashed for sure.
1: Yeah. No, it was was rough. So then, obviously, I couldn't work out for like nine months, and I I put on some weight. I was the biggest I had ever been. I was up to like 185, which isn't a lot, I know, but it was all fat. Like, I was was skinny. Um, Skinny before that, I mean... It was very lean. And then I I, so I was at like 165. And then I ballooned. I put on 20 pounds of nothing but fat because I just wasn't working out and doing anything except dr- drinking beer. Uh, <clears throat> so I went to the normal gym, like just a normal bro gym on base. And I did the same routine that I had been doing in college, just with lighter weight. And I was like, well, that's totally fine. And then at the end of that week, I got rhabdo, rhabdomyolysis. It's when the myoglobin in your bloodstream breaks down, enters your kidneys, your kidneys can't process it, you pee blood, and then you die. And so I stopped working out. I spent the night in the hospital where they, you know, made sure that my K-Count was good to go. Um, And then my friend's like, well, just come try CrossFit with me. You can scale the workouts. You can do however you want. Start light, start slow. But there's coaches that are there. So if you tell them what your programming level is, like what you need, they're there. You're pretty much paying for the training at that point. You're not paying just to throw weights around. So I did. And I met this guy named Marcus. He used to own a gym down here awesome dude, great at fitness, um, very, very knowledgeable about how fitness works and impacts the human body. And so I talked to him, I was like, hey man, just getting off a of rhabdo, obviously I can't start lifting heavy, but I have that attitude where I'm gonna want to go all out. And he's like, roger that man, Like I'll keep you straight. So for about three months, he kept me on the straight and narrow you know, until my body got used to working out again. Um, and then pretty let me have free reign, I started go- going to the gym like twice a day while I was down here. So, did a lot of working out and then fast forward to deployment Um, we get out there because of my detachment and deployment cycles for training from Washington I'd actually put on a little bit of weight too I was up back at like 180 that's because Pacific Northwest beer and food is fucking fantastic man oh
0: yeah absolutely they're all super heavy
1: like uh, and then just being gone every other month for a month at a time pretty much was our training schedule I think the longest once I joined VAQ 134 the longest that I had back home consecutively was like five weeks between my next detachment. And we'd be gone for three or four weeks at a time on debt. And you're working 12, 14 hours a day on debt. Sleep schedule gets all messed up. You don't have time to work out, but you always have time to eat. Squadron will go out most of the time, and then we'll boom on the weekends. So I put on some weight, and then when I got on deployment, I was like, I'm not drinking, I'm only gonna eat healthy. I'm gonna start working out again on a routine. So I did the same thing. I spent the first month, uh, two months really, on deployment, getting back into a workout routine. Um, I lost 15 pounds in the first month that I was out there mostly because I wasn't drinking. Uh, and then once my body got used to working out again, we started getting into a schedule on deployment and I could start an actual routine. And yeah, dude, I got heavy into it again. I started coaching out there at CrossFit Undisclosed because um, I was coaching down here initially. And the, the crew that worked, at the, or that worked out at the gym was fantastic like all those guys were all out there being deployed. We're all, you know, living the deed life and, and hating it and loving it at the same time. So I made some of the best friends that I have in the world. We were all of the same mentality for working out. Um, I'd go to work for, you know, five hours a day, six hours a day, just cause when you're not flying, there's not much to do out there. You're there to do the mission. And once the mission's complete, you're like, okay, uh, guess we'll do it again tomorrow. So I had all this free time and I started getting into working out, kept eating healthy because um, you really couldn't eat unhealthy out there. Well, you could if you tried, but it was expensive and you didn't want to. Yeah.
0: Um,
1: so they had you know, chopped chicken breast, two chopped chicken, or uh, ground turkey patties at the defect, the dining facility. Uh, but then a whole slew of vegetables. So I pretty much shouldn't like a pescatarian. I had probably 75, 85% of my diet for 10 months was vegetables. Wow. Because there just wow. wasn't any delicious meat to eat. It was dry chicken or top, chopped turkey. But same thing, the people that I was working out with, were very knowledgeable. They taught me a lot. Some of them were regional competitors for the CrossFit um, Games. And then we're all just out there doing jobs. So anytime we weren't doing our job, we were at the gym or asleep because there's really not much else to do out there. So I was able to get back into really great shape. Yeah, I started doing Olympic lifting. One of the guys out there was a power lifter, so I started working out with him. He was a C-130 pilot in the Air Force. He has like a 550 back squat. This it's fucking an animal. It's absurd. I hit 315. three. I think I hit 325 once. And I was like, that's amazing. I'm the greatest person in the world. Yeah. And boy. he's like, I'll just rep out 550 for three. I was like, you dick. That's crazy. Um, but yeah, I don't know if I really answered your question. But no, no, you did. You did <laughs> that's sure. my story. Yeah, you did for yeah. sure. <laughs> what I appreciate about the CrossFit community um, is that, Obviously, you have to go get certified to be a level one trainer, but to be a level one trainer really doesn't take much You take uh, a two-day course and you learn the basic mechanics of Gymnastics Olympic lifting Cardio like intensive cardio type training You just learn the basics and your basics is like cues your what cues you're looking for to help fix somebody who is just starting or, you know, if they do an early pull on a lift or if they aren't going all the way down on their squats, like that's really all you're looking for is a level one trainer, but any CrossFit gym that I've been to or dropped in at, um, either the head coach or some of the other coach or participants will have some better knowledge of Olympic lifting or cardio training. Like I dropped into one gym and, um, the head coach was like a marathon runner and it was his gym and he was like oh yeah i just run marathons all the time so like i don't really lift heavy but this is joe i don't remember his name but he's like this is joe he's you know usa weightlifting level 12 coach it's like they there's always somebody there that's going to know more and have a little bit better perspective i would say just based on their own experience to try and coach you so like i've been doing CrossFit since 2014, so six years. I, I've coached for most of that time. Um, but I never go into somewhere, and hopefully nobody ever goes into a gym just thinking they're hot shit, because there's always going to be somebody in there that knows more than you and then can lift more than you. So even today we're just doing um, a regular push press. It's like over the head kind of press. And the coach at the gym I go to now is a little big weightlifting dude. And he's not big by any means. like. If you just saw him walking on the street, you'd be like, oh, that guy's in shape. But this dude just won Florida's weightlifting competition and he just looks like a regular dude. And there's another dude there who, same thing, snatches like 300 pounds. Um, so the size doesn't play into it. It's definitely more technique. And that's what I struggle yeah. with. So that's what I appreciate. Long story short is there's always somebody that's gonna know more, is gonna be able to help you out in terms of technique and, and usage versus me just going to the gym and being like, this looked right, you know, from what I saw on YouTube. Um,
0: and you can hurt yourself, too. Like, like yeah. I've hurt myself a lot trying to figure out what to do without really knowing what I was doing the right way. And especially when you're dealing with heavy weights, like, I mean, I felt like I was just at a size where, like, I wanted to lift heavy. Because, I mean, at, at 6 foot, right now I think I was, I'm, was i like, 212, right? So, like, at 6 foot, 212 pounds, I'm not small, you know? Like, I'm not I'm not huge at all. But I'm not a small guy, so I was just like, man, that – I kind of want to get bigger. I want to be a larger guy since I'm like, I'm at this kind of like body type. I'll I'll keep going with that. And once you fuck around with heavy weights and you hurt yourself, I think a lot of people don't realize when you hurt yourself weightlifting, a lot of the times it doesn't show until the day after. So you don't realize that you pulled that muscle or you ripped the muscle because of all the adrenaline, all the endorphins you've got going on until later that day. And then you go to stand up and all of a sudden your back doesn't want to move the same way. Um, for me, I have I have a really bad knee that I've dislocated a couple times. So doing heavy weights on that, especially like squats and deadlifts, it really bugs me because it's always at a specific angle as I'm coming up and putting weight on it that it will randomly just shoot pain up my leg and I'll drop whatever I'm holding. So like I don't really do heavy deadlifts or squats anymore or uh, just for that purpose. But like just the other day, I was getting out of my car and just – putting my left leg out because I have a kind of lower car and like just lifting up my weight off like that it I tweaked it and it just started hurting again but yeah. uh, I think the best thing that I've ever done is ask questions and try to learn more and I'm by no fucking means a professional I haven't been inside a gym in so long I've just done this stuff at home because I learned it and it works for me right now but like so many times I hurt myself and then realized that all this like effort I'm exerting for this one exercise is not actually benefiting the muscle that I thought it was and it didn't do shit for me. So I just got tired. Yeah, I burned calories and burned some fat off, but like the muscle really was hurt more than anything else. Then I can't use it for some amount of time. So when it actually builds back up, it's not getting any larger because I'm not using it anymore. Um and I've there's a lot of myths out there with like weightlifting and, and exercise in general, you know, like I heard um never lift on an empty stomach i always lift on an empty stomach i never work out on a full stomach because i always end up puking (laughs) like that's just me personally some people can't Some people can't i i've heard uh let's see i've heard high weight low repetition and low weight high repetition does certain things for certain muscle groups and half the time i've found that for me that's not necessarily how it works i've also heard that you shouldn't work out the same muscle group two days in a row and i do that quite often where I'm working out my biceps two days in a row, three days in a row before I even uh, give them a day off. And even if I do give them a day off, sometimes it's just it's just lower weight, it's not really a day off, yeah. it's just a lighter
1: workout. So. Well, that's because biceps are the most important muscle. Because they look the best. Yeah, yeah, duh. Math is important, big biceps are important, or duh. I actually worked out my
0: triceps way too much and didn't focus on my biceps at all, so my arms look very weird. Like, <laughs> like it's really awkward to hear, especially because I worked my shoulders out so much Um, Just because I I enjoy shoulder workouts so like when I lift up my arm and I would try to make like I mean I could feel my bicep right, but there's not a separate a really strong separation between my shoulder and my bicep like up here So I could see it down by my elbow, but not up there and it irritates the fuck out of me
1: (laughs) back to your other points Um, I Think all those in terms of fitness all the points you made um, or about myths are uh, gross generalizations of techniques that other people have used that work for them. So like for me personally, I I have to eat at least like three hours before I go to the gym and work out, and it's gotta be something small. The same thing, I just can't work out on it every day. I don't get the same amount of, I don't know, my body just doesn't feel right when I'm doing it. And then normally after after a hard workout or a long run or something, I can't, I can't eat for like the next two hours, just because my body's still coming down off of that. Um, And then high weights, low reps, low reps, high weight, or you know what I'm trying to say. Um, Again, it depends on what you want to do. And different things work for different people. So I think that all those myths and all the ways that people approach the gym after just going on the internet and, and learning these tips and tricks that work for other people, most people don't take into account their own body. They don't give it the time that it needs to try out these different techniques, try out um, different workouts, different workout styles, whether it's Olympic lifting or bro lifting, um, machines or free weights, barbells versus dumbbells. Um, They don't give their own body enough time to either become accustomed to this new type of working out or give the type of workout the time it needs to determine whether or not it's actually going to work for you. True. So they just True. jump into the gym and they're like, "I saw that dude doing curls. I'm gonna do some curls." Or like, "I saw that chick on the squat, so I'm gonna go do squats." And so, yeah. Then after a week, they're like, "Well, I'm so sore, I can't even work out anymore." And so, well, yeah, man, you just jumped right into it. you didn't you didn't think about it at all. You didn't take an approach plan. So just like anything else you do in life, if you're gonna take care of your body and, and use your body to the maximum extent possible. You need to plan it out and you need to work for it. And it's not going to happen overnight.
0: Absolutely. And I think like what to, you, to what you were saying a second ago, you know, there's a, there's a big difference between working out and exercising. You Correct. know, you exercise so that you don't get a heart attack at 40 years old and die. You work out because you want to try to look better. And I mean, like, <laughs> I mean, let's be honest, you know, like, When has being an Olympic level weightlifter ever really helped somebody outside of lifting weights? You know, like nobody's ever lifted up a car off of a burning body because of that. It's really just like, yeah, you're in really good health, but you could also get hit by a bus tomorrow. Like it's not going to stop you from from anything. So I think a lot of it has to come to come with a passion of wanting to do something that's really difficult. Not a lot Mm -hmm. of people do it. You also feel. I mean, you get some instant gratification, you get some long term gratification, you get instant gratification when you're done with a workout because the feeling after like a really good workout is way different than any other feeling. It's like I can compare it to skateboarding. It's almost like trying to land a trick for so long, but then at the end of every workout session, you finally land that trick and you're like, all right, this is cool. Yeah, I mean there's days when workouts don't feel as good when I'm like too tired and like I I burn out too quickly and you know instead of hitting four sets I hit three and then I'm like I'll do a half instead of four and like afterwards I'm like damn why didn't I just hit four you know. Um,
1: But everybody has those days that's not that's not anything new and that's your body telling you hey man today's probably not the day to try for this heavy weight. Yeah we might get hurt. Yeah for sure. Like it's okay it's okay to take a break the other day I was like you know what I'm fucking sitting on my couch all day i just restarted uh, naruto okay like because it's on netflix yeah. i was just bruised, cruising through and i saw it and i was like well, i got i got two hours before i gotta do anything let me just start it and i've been binge watching it since you know one because i like listening to the japanese again and two just because there's not really anything better on for me to watch mandalorian only comes out on sundays so <laughs> yeah i feel you um but yeah like i was like i don't have the motivation to go to the gym and i know that if i went to the gym yeah, I might get a little bit of a workout in, but my intensity won't be there. My mind's not in it already. My body is telling me that I should take a breather, just just have a day.
0: Yeah, and the recovery days are something that like that's no joke, man. I think, um, and again, like I'm not lifting at the level you are. I'm not lifting at the level a lot of people are, uh, and I'm not like working out at that extreme level. But I'm doing it more than I've ever done it before. And like i'm i'm coming to learn that recovery days and days where i'm not killing myself to do anything has been way more important than like lifting days a lot you know um especially for having like joint problems right like i when i first started running last year i don't know if you i am sure you probably have never run into this before but i used to get bruises on the top of my feet when i would run and it wasn't oh no, yeah i've never had that it was not from my shoes what was happening is I, because i was so heavy and i hadn't run in so long i was breaking i was like ripping tendons in my foot just Holy from shit. the pressure of it so it was actually like fluid from like my tendons and shit uh that was causing like bruises on the top of my feet And i was so confused because i'm like it doesn't feel like a bruise and i'm very confused about why this is happening but uh yeah i'll get that every now and then if i like go like way too hard and i think it's just like coming to terms with the fact that i'm not a kid anymore i can't skate down a 20 stair bounce back up like i used to yeah and i'm only i'm not i'm not 30 yet I'm, I'm creeping up on it i'm i still feel young but i think you know in today's world especially with fast food and social networking sites and everything like that like we can throw trash into our body way faster and way easier than ever before And I think we're just now coming to realize the long-term effects and even short-term effects of what that can do to somebody. Mm -hmm. You know, like if you wanted to eat fast food in the the 70s, it was like a treat to go out and eat fast food. Whereas now, it's like the staple of most people's – yeah uh like food pyramid like they have t- yeah. they have taco bell at the top followed by wendy's burger king everything i mean else.
1: i mean, Judah, I mean taco bell is great for sure yeah. and like yeah. <laughs> i still eat
0: i still eat food like that all the time like i'm not gonna lie i i definitely might go get taco bell after this i'm gonna have my wife drive maybe if she's still awake i don't know
1: yeah
0: <laughs> all right man we've done three hours already yeah <laughs> um, and this is one we're definitely gonna have to chop up because like We talked about some things that were, you know, a a little too doxing of some people about where they live and what they do and uh, other topics that I feel like I don't know enough about to really speak on, like... At a professional level.
1: <laughs> yeah, fair enough. Uh but we should
0: definitely do this again, man. I think next time if you're down. I'm down. Like we should yeah. we should pick like a single well, topic.
1: I was just about to say we should pick like one or two topics and try to stick to those, man. I mean we're all over the board today, but it was fucking it's a good conversation. Yeah. It was good catching up. Absolutely,
0: man. Well, it was, it was really good talking to you, dude. Just let me know when you get free time again. We'll do it again sometime. I'm looking to get yeah. like some regular people on too. So by the way, before I let you go, I've let everybody do this so far. Um, I don't know if you want to do it or not, because you are in the military and I don't know how that whole thing works, but um You know, I've had clothing designers put up their fashion website. I've had some people put up their Instagrams. I've had people put up this or that. Do you have anything you want to plug? Like anything you're doing besides military stuff? Or you just want to leave it as your name is Bo and that's it?
1: No, man. World world peace and equality for everybody, man. Okay, cool. That's all I got to say. I figured it would be something cool
0: like that. And that's the end of the podcast. Thanks for sticking around for the whole thing. If you want to listen to more podcasts, don't forget, I'm on all podcasting platforms. So Josh the Collins podcast on Apple, Google, Spotify, anywhere you get podcasts, I'm on there right now. Uh, don't forget to follow me on Instagram, which is Josh the Collins on Instagram, or Josh the Collins podcast for the specific podcast Instagram. And again, do whatever you have to do to keep getting these podcasts. Whether that's liking on Facebook, following on Spotify, giving me ratings, doing whatever you have to do to make sure you keep getting these Monday and Friday drops. Uh, no podcast should go unlistened to. Every guest on here is awesome, so thanks for listening and have a good day.